Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope everybody is listening, reading, and enjoying. I am here today, another long, wonderful, taxing, uncertain day in self-isolation. I'm in my studio and uh, just hanging out, and I thought that today would be a very good day to talk to my longtime friend, Roland Grail. He is a lighting designer and programmer out of Germany, and uh, he has had such prolific clients as Rammstein and the Rolling Stones. Him and I have met up several times and we have had a great discussion. So we thought it would be a good day to meet up and kind of talk about where we're at in the industry these days. Thank you so much for making the time, Roland. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Nice, nice to be here with you, Chris. Always a pleasure. I, I would imagine that the little one's in bed now. You've got some, uh, some free time. Absolutely. I mean, uh, literally being back in isolation here in Germany now, it's nighttime. So the normal family business is done for today. It's a good time to talk to good buddies and talk a little bit about our normal life, more gig related <laughs> stuff, lights and all the fun stuff we normally deal with when we're not isolated and having lovely family time, which is good on the other hand as well. I've not yeah. been home for that long in the last 25 years, which is pretty amazing. I, I feel the same uh, I would much rather have this over a, a pint in, in Germany somewhere, but this will have to do for now. Absolutely. You get used to this Zoom thing and all those video conference calls. It's a great way to stay at least in contact. I used to hate video conferencing until the world got flipped upside down. And now it's the best we got. So I, I've adapted, I'm making the best of it. We have to. Absolutely. I mean, thanks God we've got that technology nowadays. I mean, just imagine whatever, 30 or even just... 25, 30 years back, where we've been, in the best case, normal landlines, no, not seeing each other, not really talking to each other. Oh, that would be way more isolated than in our day and age. God, even 10 years ago, for you and I to be chatting this far away, this would be $5 a minute. Absolutely. <laughs> now it's, it's just short of free. What was the last trip that you took roland uh funny enough i had one show this year uh i think it was early in march i flew over uh to mexico city to do a show with the with guns and roses there which was supposed to be a four and a half or five week run uh throughout south america helping my good friend mikey duke and opie on the video side running their media servers and that was pretty much the weekend where the whole world shut down and uh, we did one show on in, in mexico city and then flew home again and i was home by tuesday instead of five weeks later and since that i've been home because out of that i took a little break beforehand which was good so i was already home for two and a half three months beside of a few days in south africa 
so now my three month break to, uh, already turned into half a year break, which is new, but it also gives you the time to think about new projects and share your knowledge via the net, not, not in person, but it's good. Yeah, that actually ties into what you were doing in South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about what you were up to in South Africa? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I've got a, by now I've got a good bunch of good friends down there, uh, which grew over the years of uh, having been in the country quite a few times, either with shows or for holidays, or also do kind of share the knowledge. And uh, my good friend Duncan Riley, who runs the biggest lighting distribution or lighting and sound distribution company in South Africa, asked me. I would guess three, four years back the first time if I would be interested to come down to South Africa to do a class or pretty much a training session for the local industry. And I said, yes. And this was this year, the third time I've been down in South Africa doing something like that. First year was a full four-day kind of really masterclass workshop thing about lighting design, programming, workflows, and so on. And in 2017, I went back there together with Patrick Woodruff, close friend and collaborator, and we do a lot of work together and we did a one day lecture down there together. And this year uh, I was invited back, uh, was glad to be invited back. And we did another full day kind of lecture about uh, lighting design for concert touring. And uh, I was joined by the local leading lighting, design, lighting designer, Joshua Katz, uh, who's also got a good friend of mine who is kind of the superhero in South Africa, lovely guy, very talented. And we did a one day lecture in front of about 400 people because it's a great thing about South Africa is the, the local industry is very enthusiastic and very passionate uh, about our work and about uh, how to progress. Obviously they possibly don't have got the big bucks as we do sometimes in our world, but still the passion is there and they soak up the knowledge and it's great. It's a lovely country. Did you find them to be very receptive? Were they, were they just really listening to everything that you and Patrick had to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. They were super interested in soaking up uh, whatever we shared with them and asking really good questions and very appreciative about the fact that we came down there to talk to them and share our knowledge and to, uh, tell them a few tales and stories about shows we've been involved in or I've been involved in and Patrick has been involved in, which is good and it's like I love giving back because uh, as I said previously it's like literally when I started in our industry 25 odd years ago uh, pushing boxes and uh, building fold-up chairs I was always looking for any kind of resource and uh, people who can teach me some tricks and uh, help me to get better in what I'm doing and I think now we're in all in this comfortable position to having worked on the road for a long time having having been blessed and humble to work on some bigger projects or quite decently big projects uh, so that we've built an experience and it's good to share those experiences with other people, especially the up and coming ones. Yeah. In the, in the form of giving, it's really nice to give back to the younger community and the people that are coming up, but in the, the taking side of it, it must feel really good to go and speak about your career and actually have 400 people be very interested to hear what you have to say without any doubt and it, uh, I mean when you do it the very first time it feels kind of weird because I've chosen uh, the position at the one end of the cable where nobody sees you for a reason because I was never the <laughs> mega talented musician I ended my my musical career at the age of 16 uh, being a drummer in a death metal band and we were pulled off the stage and this was the moment where I decided no 
possibly the stage end is not the, the right end in the rock and roll world for myself. But uh, as uh, 20 something years uh, later, you end up in standing in front of 400 people. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great experience. And it's, as I said, it's also, it makes you feel even more humbled what you've achieved over the years. And uh, for the last year or so, I always started, or I always start my, my lectures with a little party trick. It's like literally showing an image from my parents' garage 27 or 28 years ago with some single par cans and home-built lighting effects uh, underneath a workbench in, in a garage, which is literally uh, where it all started, building my own little lighting systems and uh, kind of putting them up for local parties in the area where I grew up. And uh, this is like literally where it all started. You never started or whatever, a Rammstein show or a Rolling Stone show or a Phil Collins or a Eurovision Song Contest or whatever. You start very on the bottom end and I've worked my way up. And uh, from that picture, it progresses into pictures of shows I've done in the last few years, which obviously is exactly on the other end of the scale. So that's, I think it's, it's a bit of motivation that literally we are in a great industry. We're literally with the right passion and uh, obviously the talent, but mostly the motivation, passion and being a good, good guy, you can make it quite far. Yeah, when we're, when we're doing it, it happens so slowly. The progression is, you know, a tiny step at a time. But then when you turn around and look back at your career, it looks like this, just this huge leap that you've gone for in a, mm -hmm. in a short amount of time. Uh, I would imagine that there were a lot of people like, oh, you've worked with them? Oh, you worked with them? That's, how did you have time to work with all those huge clients that uh, barely fitted into an hour kind of talking about your stories? And I would imagine you even had to kind of edit what you could say about your some of your stories absolutely i mean it's like uh, you always pick pick out the, the ones which you you think are the best obviously for that special occasion but obviously it's it's, it's good and, and sometimes i uh, i think you should always write them down in a, in a diary and uh, really put it together or whatever in 20 years time because there is still a lot to be uh, a lot to be experienced over the next whatever 10 20 years which i'm still active in any shape or form in rock and roll and then put up a book which is literally a diary and tales from the road or something like that wow, that's a great plan so when you went to south africa did you have to put together a a powerpoint a slideshow of your career and all your photos i've got a i mean over the years i've kind of built uh, different versions of, of kind of slideshows or presentations uh powerpoint or keynote uh literally and that's uh, always it's it's a bit it's especially the one day in South Africa it was just a little bit about me, about my work, but it was always also the idea to, sh to teach them something which they can use because tales are great without any doubt. They're fun to listen to, but it's also to give them some knowledge and possibly knowledge they can transfer to their work and they can use or make their, their work better possibly or have a fresh approach on it. So literally all those presentations, they're normally always around one specific example project where you just take them through. And if you've got a day, you take them through in a day. Funny enough, a week ago or two weeks ago, I did a webinar for, I think, 60 German students who were studying lighting design. It was the same idea, but it was kind of compressed to one hour instead of a day. And you could talk a week about that. I mean, we, we've done anything in between whatever, four or five days to, down to an hour. And it's mostly about the workflow because you can't teach somebody in a day or five days how to program a lighting desk or how to 
use uh, vector works or anything like that. But what you can tell them and what you I think can really show them is uh, with a good organi organized workflow, getting from your first ideas in your head and uh, how to pitch them to the clients, to the band management or whatever, over the, all the steps in the process, like putting them on, a, on paper in, in plots, visualizing them, and then making the best use of your time to program them and translate them into reality. If you have a little bit of experience, you build your own workflow. And this is what I'm mostly talking about and trying to tell them is how to work efficiently and in a, in a good manner. So coming up in the, in the industry, did you have a mentor or did you, what resources did you have available to you to learn this sort of stuff? I mean, in the, in the very early days, it was all pretty much learning by doing. And uh, then I was blessed to, to meet the right people at the right times of my career, I would say. Uh, it started, I mean, I've not, I've not started as a programmer, LD or anything. Uh, I started pretty much in the professional industry. I started as a stagehand, putting up folding chairs and progressed into being a lampy for smaller German productions and then working as a lampy on the road on, on worldwide productions and tours. Uh, and then slowly but surely progressing into more programming and that stuff. And later on, more into design. I was always blessed to to meet the right people at the right time. So within being uh, a lampy, just a normal technician out there, I had the right people who, who kind of teach me or, or taught me all the tricks and show me things. And uh, I was always soaking up knowledge. And uh, especially later on when it went more to programming, Whenever I had the time, I closed myself into a rabbit hole with a lighting console in a warehouse of a vendor and played around and, and learned pretty much everything by myself. And then working with, with other people who had experience, obviously, you take up the tricks from them. You look over their shoulders. And uh, if you're a nice guy, they take you in their, in their hand and tell you, oh, you've got to do this and that and that. Later on, I was blessed to work for people like Patrick or Ed Ambassador or people like Cherry Appled over here in Germany and uh, other older, even older designers. Uh, and obviously they, they gave me chances. And when I started with Patrick nearly 15 years ago or something, I've, I haven't started with the Rolling Stones. I've started with very small projects. They gave me chances and I learned from them. I learned from all of them. And I'm literally, and I think even up today, uh, up to today, if you go out in any kind of show and it doesn't, the size doesn't really matter. It's all about being open-minded and you can learn every day from everybody around you. And mm -hmm. if you're surrounded by the right people, you can build on your experience and, and grow from there. Yeah. Long before webinars, that was the only way that you could progress in, in our industry was to go and ask somebody very politely if you could use one of their very expensive consoles in their shop for a certain amount of hours. And if they said, no, then you just didn't have that information available to you. Absolutely. Nowadays with webinars and online open source resources, it, I mean, you could still learn without having to ask so politely. It's, it's kind of a fast track, but you also kind of lose that, that relationship where you have to be humble and very kind and say, can mm. I please learn on your console? Can you please yeah. give me a favor? But I think that that foundation and that basement is, is, is key for success in the long run. Uh, it's like literally when you talk to those students just uh, studying whatever lighting design, they all, all ask you, oh, how do you get a lot big, big show lighting design? It doesn't matter if it's Broadway or anything. And you tell them, yeah, mm, it's, you won't you won't get out of university and will be the 
the biggest lighting designer on the market. This is not how it works. And thanks God, it's not how it works. I'm, I'm pretty blessed and I w wouldn't want to miss my years uh, working as a normal MP because that gives you, first of all, the basement and also a, a good understanding of the stuff you later on designing or programming that gives you an appreciation of your crew and all that stuff. And also, when you go into designing shows or also programming shows, uh, I still, up to this day, I say, you learn more or, the, or it's way more difficult and the art is way bigger to create a great versatile lighting design or show over two hours with 48 park hands and, and four moving lights or eight moving lights. That's, that's more difficult than you have having whatever a rig with 500 movers and every, every money in the world with all the technology in the world. Mm -hmm. So you craft your skills with doing small stuff. Did you go to school for lighting? Nope. Uh, back in the day, by now there is uh, there are various universities over here in Germany uh, teaching lighting design, and uh, there is also an official job description. When I started in the industry, it was literally still the band of gypsies industry where it was learning by doing, uh, <laughs> and it was uh, possibly two or three years or four years after I started now in the professional part of the industry when they started the normal apprenticeships and, and all that stuff. But by then I was already the biggest freelancer in the world, in my mind at least. Uh, so I didn't see any reason to take an apprenticeship or go to school again. So I was lucky and happy and hey, it paid off, at least in my case. <laughs> what did your parents think about you uh, going off to join the band of gypsies? Oh, uh, my, my, my dad was always very supportive and he said, yeah, whatever you want to do and you'll be successful as long as you like what you do. Mommy was a little bit more uh, critical <laughs> about it. Uh, why didn't you go to university to get a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that? But hey, it took, it took whatever, 10, 15 years until she saw the first shows where I was involved and uh, by now, whatever. The biggest German newspaper uh, didn't feature about me as a lighting designer last year working for all those bands. And that was like, oh, my son has, made, uh, has really made a career. But still, I think if I would have been a lawyer or a doctor, she would be more proud of me. But by now she, she accepted and she, she understands what I'm doing, that it's not like just hanging out, taking drugs and having a party. <laughs> you're not just handing out backstage passes and selling t-shirts here. Exactly. You're exactly. actually creating something and uh, hanging out and doing, doing art. You're, you're actually a, a professional artist. You are actually creating something that people love and creates emotions. And it sounds like you're doing quite well. I would hope that your parents are enjoying the tickets that they get when they come to see. Absolutely. I don't know if they're Rammstein fans or not, but. Not necessarily Rammstein, but certain other bands. So by now that's, that's fine. And it's like, I'm still, I, ultimately I wouldn't tell them, but I'm still uh, the kid in the big toy store. I mean, ultimately I still don't see it as a job. Uh, <laughs> even 25 odd years later, I'm still enjoying literally every day I go to work or do work and, uh, it's it's just a bonus to get paid for playing with all these huge Lego bricks we have. It's like the only difference between men and boys is the size of their toys. That is one of the harder parts of my job is hiding my giddiness <laughs> during some of the bigger shows. You're like, oh my God, I'm at the Olympics right now. I can't believe that I'm on the field at the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I don't know how to hide that I'm like a little school kid super excited to just 
be here, that somebody even wanted me to be here or needs me to be here, it's still, I can still get this little smile inside my face and I have to hide it sometimes and be all absolutely professional like absolutely i mean we're getting paid to travel the world with uh 99.9 percent really nice people mm -hmm. uh see shows every day create something new every other day uh, play with lights play with technology build all those crazy things and we're getting even paid for it and, and we're getting good food and uh, we've we made a good living out of it so hey yeah. and, and you were completely self-made nobody Nobody gave you a piece of paper that says you're a, a lighting person now. You just nope. you did it all on your own and then kind of figured it out and figured out who could help you out outside of the outside of the education field. Pretty much that way. Yeah, it was like uh, I finished school with a very average uh, degree because by that time I was already not thinking about going to university. I wanted to be a roadie or I wanted to work in our industry. And then I had to go to the military in Germany. Back in the day, you had to go for a year. That is my only official job description I ever had in my life, uh, <laughs> being at the mountain army in Bavaria for a year, hating it uh, with uh, every blood cell I have. But still, uh, and after that, everything else is homemade and uh, I've got no official title or anything like that. But hey, here I'm Soldier sitting Soldier and Lampy are your, that's your, that's your entire CV. Pretty much. It's <laughs> <laughs> impressive. So then how did you realize that there was a profession to be had there and that you weren't just a, a, a gypsy who was going to be begging for, for alms out there on the road? How did you realize, like, oh my God, somebody's going to start paying me for this? At age 16, 17, when I was running my little own lighting and sound company, mostly with home-built staff, uh, I already got in contact with uh, local vendors to kind of uh, get some, hire some bigger equipment, bigger speakers, bigger lights and all that stuff. I rent them out, so pretty much dry hire on a very small, small scale back in the day. And this is where I recognized, okay, uh, there are some professional companies out there who make real good money and they make a living out of it. And I saw those people and I thought, hey, I want to be like them at one point. Obviously, uh, I stopped my own rental business pretty much when I stopped, uh, ended school and went to be a freelance uh, lampy. And it all progressed from there. And then being out on the road with those small productions and working on those small productions, doing very stupid things like driving a truck for 20 hour, odd hours to, to go to a load-in straight, load it in, do a show, load it out, and drive a truck another 10 hours uh, to go to the next city, doing really stupid stuff back in the day. Then you saw, all right, there are these bigger concerts, just German touring artists. I want to work with them. I will do a TV show. And I set my goal there and... Uh, Funny enough, or thanks God, I pretty much always achieved those goals. And then I was always like, oh, there are these bigger productions touring the world, doing whatever arenas around the world. I want to work there. And uh, I slowly made my way up there where I'm now. And there's still a lot to be achieved in my life without any doubt. Do you have a goal checklist or do you just make up new goals as you're moving along? There's no real checklist. I would say it's more pretty much like uh, when I move along, see something new or uh, you said your goal, pretty much. And sometimes it takes a few years to get to this goal. Uh, obviously, you can't put them on a timeline. I tried that, but it has never worked no, out. it doesn't work uh, that way. Exactly. Because obviously, uh, they're always beside of the component that you're talented or you know what you're doing uh, and that you know you how to sell yourself and be a nice guy. That's a very important element of the whole game as well. Uh, there's also the element of 
being lucky or being at the right place at the right time to get the chance to progress on and make some steps towards your next goal. Did you find yourself pursuing bigger names, bigger clients and bigger uh, designers uh, or did it just, did they come to you? In the early years of my career, I would say I was definitely trying to go that direction and pursuing to work for bigger names and bigger names and bigger names, especially coming from Germany. If you want to go out in the world and work on a more international base, you look up to those people like whatever Patrick or Leroy or Peter Moores and all those people, which I know happily call colleagues and friends. At that point, you definitely try to get involved with them you, because that is your chance. Or you see it as your chance to progress up. At a certain point, I think it gets more to the stage where you just meet people and they want to work with you or, or you want to work with them. doesn't matter if it's designers or, or bands or clients. Uh, sometime, at some point, it's not like pitching anymore. It's more like, hey, they're interested in your work. Okay, let's do some work together. It's hard to tell if that is being bold or if that's being lucky. Because if you're actively seeking to make something happen and then it happens, was it luck? Or was it, was it you just being so brave that you were willing to take that risk? Let me Sorry, give you yeah. my story and let me see if, you, if this is anything relatable. Patrick Woodruff was designing Lake of Dreams in Las Vegas 15, maybe 16 years ago. And I knew who he was and I knew that I could get a hold of him through email. So I sent him emails and this, I was still just a, uh, a technician then working on Verilite. I would send him emails like, hey, if you ever have time for lunch, I'd love to meet up. And of course, he never did. He was very polite in the emails. Like, hey, man, I would love to. This sounds great. I just don't have time. I'm really sorry. And then, you know, another five years passed and I would email him. It's like, hey, if I see that you're coming to Vegas again, if you have time, I'd love to go to dinner or something. And it didn't work out. And now here it is 15 years later, and I'm going to be helping him on the Lake of Dreams in Win based on just, you know, just constantly kind of, not lack of term pestering, but staying in constant contact. Is that, is that something that relates to your story? Is that how you met some of these big names that you had been searching for? Mm, some of them, yeah. Some of them, not all of them, I would say. Uh, it's, it was both. It was sometimes it was luck, literally luck that I was at the right place at the right time and they were in the need for something. Uh, on the other hand, there were other contexts which I literally also kind of pushed by myself by staying in touch, uh, reaching out, saying, hey, if you ever need somebody, I'm here. I'm very willing to work uh, for uh, for money and uh, just to, to learn as well. Uh, so I had both situations, obviously both situations. And it's, it's always a combination. And even if you push something, there's still, from my point of view, I think there's still luck involved because uh, the right uh, opportunity needs to come around the corner. Obviously, then you've got to push it by that point because you stay. You, you need to stay in contact with that person that he's got your head, uh, your name in uh, your name in his head uh, when the right opportunity comes around, and then he say, "Oh, all right, I remember that that lovely guy Chris who from Vegas who who wrote me that email, whatever, mm -hmm. a, a few months ago. That would be the perfect fit. I need somebody to fill this uh, this hole." And, off you go, obviously. And this is where you start to build a relationship. And I think it's all about relationships in the long, on the long run. And I'm, I'm pretty proud that pretty much all the designers, the clients or people I've worked with uh, over my career, even with those I'm not really working regularly anymore, 
I still call them friends and we are in a contact and this is how you build a relationship. It's all about relationship at the end of the day. But you need, to, you need to get the chance to start a relationship. And sometimes you've got to push a little bit to get the chance. So what tools do you find that you have uh, most readily available to you for that? Do you use, uh, is it mostly social media? Do you use magazines? What do you, what do you prefer to use to track projects and people who are working on projects? That's a good question. I mean, as sad, uh, I was in the blessed position and a good position over the last years uh, that I never had to search for work. Uh, mostly the work came our way or my way. But obviously, you still keep your eye out and listen to what, what colleagues say or what, what's around in social media, what's, what's going on. If, if possibly uh, a band is go, seems to go out in the near future where you possibly see an opportunity to get in, get, get involved and in them looking for a lighting design or a production design. But all that said, as said, it's hard to say because normally I, I try to avoid to, to, to hunt for work. And I was in the, okay. the blessed position that I didn't need to hunt for work in the last years. Hopefully it will stay like that. You never know. But uh, obviously it's always good to stay up to date what's, what's going on around you. And this could be via social media, via reading magazines, industry magazines, also looking a little bit over to the promoters or side, like whatever, Polestar, all those, uh, those things, mm. and uh, meet, meet the industry. Uh, that's the other thing. And this is uh, always uh, possibly the only reason why I've been to quite a few LDIs in Vegas over the last 15 years was not necessarily the trade show. It's, it's a nice place, but you could look at gear somewhere else as well. But uh, Vegas LDI, for instance, is perfect to socialize. It's like because it's it's a meeting point for the whole industry and beside of just the lighting industry you find a lot of production managers and all your clients there as well so those kind of occasions are uh, until two years or three years ago when it was still in in existence in the old in the old way uh, going to touring conference in uh, america was also great it's not about i'm not fucking interested in uh, how to book in Learchat or uh, how to book an hotel or anything <laughs> like that uh, but uh, you hang out for a few days with all the lovely people from our kind of industry family and even though if you haven't worked with them for years uh, you just show your face and you, you stay in contact and that's the same thing keep your name in the back of the heads of the people who could call you. And uh, because if they need somebody with your expertise and they, they remember you at the right moment, you've got a gig. So it sounds like you're saying that networking is your number one tool. I would guess so, yeah, absolutely. It's mostly about staying in, in touch with the right people, either with, with people you want to work with or also with people you think could be beneficial as, uh, as an asset to do a show like whatever a specific programmer or uh, a notch guy for video stuff or uh, somebody who could put together a visualization or anything like that. It's like, uh, it's about our industry, I think is, is, is a people industry. It's all about relationship. It's all about the people and you should use the best tool to stay in touch with them. Do you think you've ever gotten a job based solely on the appearance of your website? Don't think so. In our industry, it, it, it's a good uh, business card to have. Obviously, uh, my personal website is just a business card at the moment anyway, uh, because I never had the time 
to invest in it and uh, neither did I need it to a certain degree. I've got a, if somebody asks, I've got a proper CV, which I can send out at any time, even bigger kind of design practices. And I've been involved now with, with Patrick and Adam for the last few years uh, with Order of Passive Design. I think it's good for them to have a website and the bigger a company gets, the more important it is to have a proper solid website, which is built nicely. But does, do they, does a website or anything like that really create work? No, it creates awareness. It's a, again, comes to the point, it's like it keeps the name out there. And it's important to keep, it doesn't matter if you're only one freelancer or if you're running a company, design company, programming company or anything, you've got to keep your name out there. But in our industry, it doesn't, I think it doesn't really create work. Yeah, I agree. I, I can think of a hundred times where somebody has been, they wanted to vet me or basically online stalk me. So they've gone to my website or my Facebook and they've, and then they've asked further questions, but it's usually word of mouth mm-hmm. how people get a hold of me or they know about me. So in that case, the, the website is a tool that may have uh, set me apart from somebody else or maybe they saw something on my website. They go, oh, that, that, he's a, what an interesting person that is. But I don't think anybody has ever found me through my website and then met me. I don't know if that's, obviously I would never know if that happened, but I don't think that I, I don't think that's ever happened. Yeah. I mean, I got, I had people contacting me via, via websites. It's like literally getting in touch, but they were more asking about if I'm offering any internship, if I can help them to mm-hmm. do something or, or people who try to offer their services as whatever uh, programmers or anything like that, which is therefore it's a good tool again, because obviously this is how you possibly build relationships or get to know people you would never meet in your normal life. And they could be great people because they're super talented. They're nice people. So from that perspective, I had contact, but never really somebody reaching out to me, asking me to whatever program a show for them because of my website or to design a show for them because of my website. Nowadays, I'm all, I find myself on LinkedIn a lot more. Do you find yourself active on LinkedIn? I've got a profile there. That's pretty much how far as it goes. And I would guess once a year I look on there and uh, keep it up to date. And I was just to add the shows you do as as an archive, basically. Exactly, exactly. That's that's pretty much it. And then I always feel bad if I haven't replied to uh, a message there. <laughs> Funny enough, it was actually today uh, a lovely lady got in touch and asked me if I want to do a lecture at an event in Stockholm later this year and talking a little bit about concert touring, live design. And she sent that message four weeks ago. I've I've missed it. So, but I got back to her apologizing about it. No, it's like literally, it's nice, and that's. I think it's to him nowadays in the 21st century, it's great to have all those tools of communication, but mm. sometimes it's complicating things because you've got Zoom, you've got BlueJeans, you've got GoToMeeting, you've got emails, you've got Facebook message, you've got LinkedIn message, you've got WhatsApp, WeChat, a text message, an old school fo- phone call. You've got so many ways of getting in touch and no just getting whatever 50 to 100 emails a day which you should read it's uh, possibly sometimes a little hard to jump on facebook and check all your messages there and then on linkedin and then wherever else it's so overwhelming because sometimes i will get people reaching out to me with serious questions in the middle of the night and i'll and i'll and i'll read it in the middle of the night and I, i'll want to go to my computer to research before i respond properly and then i'll try and then i'll be like man it's in my head that they asked a question was it messenger 
Was it an email? Mm -hmm. Was it LinkedIn? Was it a text message? How do I remember how they asked me that question? I know I have to respond. But where that was it? <laughs> and it's like, I think I'm, I'm still believing that for, for one of those clever, smart uh, software developers, there would be a great opportunity if you would just develop an app or a software on the computer, which just kind of brings all those different forms of communication together. Where you just literally, if you get an email, it goes in there. If you get a text message, message it goes in there. If you get a WhatsApp message, it goes in there. And you just mm -hmm. get one thing. It's like, that would be a thing of beauty and would make life 10 times easier and uh, less complicated than it, it is sometimes in our days with all those different forms of communication. If any software developers are listening right now, we, yep. you have two potential clients. I would totally <laughs> sign up for that. I don't know how you would get so many satellites and so many formats to link up, but if you could sort that out, I would be eternally I, grateful for that one. I, I put my money in, in the Kickstarter for that one, for sure. I would, I'd, I'd kick in a hundred, two, 300 bucks for that one. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so with the dizzying levels of technology these days, do you find that the, the higher tech stuff is creating more noise in designs or do you feel like you're using technology to enhance your designs? Mm, that's a two-sided sword there. There are definitely two answers to this question. First of all, it's, it's great to have all these new technology, the new toys and uh, lights and media servers and integration and automation and whatever, all, all the magic tricks out there. That's that. Uh, I think for every, at least I tried for my design work and we tr uh, tried if I work with Florian on projects or with Patrick on projects, it's all about using the technology for a reason. So there could be a reason. It's like, uh, let's put out two examples, for instance. In the last few years, I've uh, worked on, on Phil Collins, for instance, together with Patrick designing it together with Patrick as an associate designer, took this show out. Uh, and I worked for, on Rammstein last year uh, with Patrick and Florian, uh, co-designing the whole lighting and uh, doing the video design work on, on Rammstein and stitching it all together as a lead designer for this show. There, you've got two diff completely different artists. You've got Phil Collins, amazing musician, big history, an amazing band on stage. You don't, for this show, you don't really need to use all the newest technology, all the tricks on all the magic. It's more about creating the right classy picture frame for that show because you've got a band on stage, which has got a huge presence. You've got an artist on stage with a great presence. You don't need to use every trick in the world. So it could be a very traditional lighting setup or design and show giving the whole show the right setting. Looking at Rammstein, they are famous for their big, big spectaculars. They are famous for their extravaganzas. Uh, so there, there is a reason to use more technology and to use the right technology. It's the amount of technologies versus also what kind of technology. If you now think about all, I mean, over the last 10 years, all the LED wall, 15 years, all the LED wall technology got very affordable and very durable. So everybody was using LED walls everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's in concert tours or if it's in broadcast events. It was, oh, we need a massive LED wall. And I'm Personally, I mean, I don't want to judge anybody else's work, but I got, from my perspective, tired of watching the next whatever gig uh, gigantic telescreen on a stadium show and possibly not even 
uh, thinking about if the telescreen fits the aesthetics of the show. So if you look at Rammstein, for instance, as an example last year, even though it was the highest or one of the highest ever toured structures, it was a massive production, big technology. Over the whole design, there was one nine by four meter video screen. And that was there because we had to have it, not because we really wanted it. There was a reason, there is a need for having some kind of IMAC and doing stadium shows nowadays. This is uh, what you've got to do for the, for the audience, but not because you want to do it. Obviously, there would have been the budget and everything to do a massive LED screen, but for the aesthetics of Rammstein, for instance, uh, an, an LED wall doesn't fit. This is industrial steampunk style mm-hmm. uh, kind of aesthetics. They've built, they've built over the years and we're mm, still taking my head off uh, Leroy's work before we took over Rammstein because he helped them to really build their kind of corporate band identity. In this world, you don't need something which looks very poppy. So it's all about, it's great to have all these modern day technology and beautiful tools, but make use of them when they make sense and use, use them when they fit into your design idea, into the aesthetics of the show you're creating, then there is a reason. Use technology for a reason, not for technology's sake. It's kind of what I'm normally trying to say about that. It's tough nowadays to figure out which ones make sense because even 20 years ago, there was only so many options. I mean, you had spots and washes and now we have so many more options and everybody wants to try and convince you, well, you clearly need to have X, Y, jibber jabbers, this and that. (laughs) And, you know, I see that you have the budget to fit 10,000 of these fixtures. So you should totally do that. It's really easy to make steampunk look messy if you're not careful Very i'd imagine true. that's something that is a fine line that you had to walk for rammstein absolutely absolutely especially for that production where uh, you've got a pretty much defined uh, kind of visual world you're working in from the beginning they expect their visual world and it has to fit in in their visual world because this is what the audience expects obviously you don't want to copy the work uh, of the other designers who've done Rammstein before. On the other hand, uh, you want to progress and build on that and, and bring it to into your style and so on and so forth. And therefore, obviously, you need to look for the right kit and the right gear which fits into this world and which does the job and uh, fits into the aesthetics. And also with, with clients like this band, they've got a very specific opinion about their show. And even that comes down, not even their show, literally how certain lights should look because they they've got a good understanding of technology and what's out in the market so you've got to pick and choose the right stuff which fits into the world obviously also based on kind of availability because that's another thing it's like it could there could be the greatest light out there in the world uh if it's not available on the market from your vendors which Mm -hmm. are supplying the kit it could be the greatest light but it is not really a benefit for your show because you can't have it uh is very aware of their image and their message i would imagine that they are heavily reliant on you to amplify their message and they're kind of relying on you to present their message to their entire fan base you you must have been very integral absolutely and i mean uh, the kind of the starting point for our working relationship with them was like literally when we when we presented our first 
design, it was very important for them, uh, first of all, that they liked what they saw and possibly more, even more important that we understand the Rammstein world and their approach and their visual aesthetics. Because as said, it's uh, possibly this is one of the bands where it's very much set in stone how the end product should look like or where it should fit in. You can work on that, you can advance it, you can bring it to the next level but it should still fit into their very specific world. And they are mm. uh, very, also based on that, they are quite involved, which is great. I mean, it's, uh, it was a lovely collaboration with them. They're really good people. And uh, uh, I always say the whole Rammstein sh show, how it went down when we opened it last May, pretty much a year ago, uh, it was all teamwork. It was teamwork, but not only teamwork, within the creative team with uh, myself, uh, Florian, Patrick, and. Uh, our associates in that team and the programmers it was teamwork for them obviously but also it was big teamwork with the band with the management who were all very involved and it was in it was in progress uh, over the, the meetings before we went into programming and rehearsals uh, when we met them and during the meetings quite a few of the kind of the, the visual ideas or the conceptual ideas uh, were born by ideas from them obviously they were really into it and uh, really kind of involved in the whole creation and design process. Having to fit into the design and the message, does that require you to be a fan of their music? Not necessarily a fan. I think every project, and it doesn't matter if it's Rammstein or whatever, or even it doesn't really matter if it's a concert or if it's a Broadway show, a theatrical show, or a broadcasted thing or anything, it's all based on understanding. It's based on understanding your, your, your client or the, the guys you work with or the, the guys you design for or work for. Uh, so before you even start to get into your first conversations, you need to uh, kind of dig deep into the World Wide Web and, and all that stuff. And thanks God we have that in nowadays to kind of find out as much as possible, uh, find out as much as possible background knowledge about your possible client like in that, that case Rammstein before we started any conversation with them it was very important to understand their history to understand their where they come from to understand what they what they think or what their thought process is uh, because the better you prepare the more you can really understand their take on things you can understand their music obviously you can understand the whole thing and uh, you can build that understanding and knowledge without being a big fan obviously if you're a big fan at the starting point uh, it could be only beneficial or it could not be you could be <laughs> you could be too much of a fan i've seen that happen as well where there's like you're really just here to hang out with the band and you're not focusing i i can't sure. imagine that's the your situation but i have seen that in the past absolutely absolutely but so yeah. you're just looking for mutual respect and understanding you're not looking to fully enjoy you're not looking to, to for all your bands to be your favorite band no, no. I mean, it would be lovely like that, but thanks God, uh, within my career, I would say out of nearly whatever 80, 90 bands or, or artists I've worked with, I really was okay with, their, uh, with the music of 70 of them or 75 of them. I'm possibly not a fan, but it, it was music which I could listen to. There were a few of them which it was hard, literally hard to create something. But hey, that's the, game, the name of the game and you're still getting paid for it. So you've got to deliver. You've got to dig into the world of uh, German Alpen rock music or something like that. And 
ultimately, it all, it all again comes down, and this is, I mean, the best breeding ground. This is where Ramstein was a great example for uh, the best breeding ground is when you really click with those people. You don't need to get the best friends, but you, you need to be on the same wavelength. So you need to, there must be a mutual, a mutual respect in between the band management and you. It, it shouldn't be, it should be an eye level. You need to be an eye level to create something special. When you, when you can talk with them and toy around with ideas, this is when you start to fly and this is where you start to really do nice things and create something great together. That's got to be tough when you have a 10 of the bands that maybe you didn't completely gel with or you don't quite understand to really still have to dig deep and come up with an understanding of that song. Like, I don't get the song at all, but I still need to make it connect the way my client needs me to make it connect. I'd imagine those are the times you're like, well, yeah, you have to pay me for this. Yeah, true. And I mean, sometimes you've got even, you've got, a, I mean, it's not even just that you don't like it. It could be a language barrier. It was quite funny. It's like it's an, a short tale from the road. In 2013, 12 or something, uh, Patrick and myself did a show for Gianna Nanini. Uh, Gianna Nanini is an Italian uh, rock, uh, rock star, but just in Italy and a little bit in Europe. Anyway, we, we put the show together, uh, me taking it out as a lighting director as well. There was this one song uh, which was created, uh, called Meravigliosa Creatura. And for me, that always sounded like the medieval creature. And it was like, okay, and this is how we lit the song. It was very dark and very uh, mystic, mystic lighting and was all good and all fun. Everybody was happy. And at some point down the road, after we've been out on the road for two months with that show, the lead artist, Jana, came to me and she was like, I was always wondering, why have you lit this song in such a dark color? And I said, it's like, yeah, because I thought Maria Valiosa Creatura, I mean, I made the mistake to never put it into Google Translate. And I thought it's the medieval creator. And it's like, oh no. And it was laughing in the whole room. And it was exactly the opposite. The Meravigliosa Creatura in Ital Italian says, most beautiful person in your life. <laughs> So it could be also lost in translation, but the song was not, not necessarily bad. And I even liked the music, but it was just like, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so simple, but so, yeah, I, I, I haven't ever really encountered the language barrier, uh, but I mean, it happens. Sometimes you, you totally miss the, miss the mark by... Absolutely. And I mean, especially, I mean, I'm German and I learned my English and it's kind of decent by now. Uh, but I've worked in, in many countries where it's not German nor English, having worked with, with Chinese people, having worked mm -hmm. with Japanese people. Uh, and sometimes you really struggle on those language barriers. And it's like, but hey, that's another challenge. And, and that's a great thing. The, ne the challenges never stop coming. That keeps you on your toes and it kind of keeps you away from getting bored in our lovely industry. Yeah, it's just like with the, the fast, upbeat, poppy songs, you can usually get a gist for what they're singing about. You know, you, you clearly you're going to go the bubblegum route or the, mm. uh, the red and white route or something. Or, but the slow songs, you never know if, it's, if they're talking about something sad or if they're talking about something lovely. They're sure. just doing it slowly. That's that's interesting to know that that's, uh, that's something you got to look out for. I, 
Thanks for Google Translate. I would imagine you'll be Google Translating next time. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like, literally, that was another lesson too, is like key for designing shows or putting shows together is always, first of all, a good understanding for kind of your client or the, the guys you work for. That's, that's key. And a good understanding where they want to go because then you can support them in, in the very best way. And also, even if they haven't hired you yet, it's even more important. If you go into a pitch with a design, it's good to know that uh, whatever artist A likes gummy bears or likes blue or likes red as a color or whatever. Every kind of background knowledge helps you. So we are almost out of time, but I wanted to get into one last question. And this is what kind of led me to reaching out to you. The integration of so many features these days. Uh, with Rammstein, you had to have, you were controlling lighting, video, so many different elements. Are you excited that everything's kind of getting moved onto one desk or do you want them to all be separated onto different desks and have different people in charge of different aspects of the show? I'm definitely, I've always been a supporter of integration of or kind of merging all the visual elements together from the start of. I mean, uh, we started toying around with uh, controlling video at the late 90s, early 2000s, and then started to be on the forefront with Catalyst and all that stuff back in the day. So it was always, uh, I think I was always kind of trying to support that whole process of merging at least video and lighting together. Ultimately, what you're saying is like, it is very, I think it's key and it's very important to have it in the same control environment. Depending on the show, uh, obviously, uh, I think with modern day technology, like all these new boards and all the integration, uh, the limitation is not necessarily the technology anymore. The limitation is the human factor behind a console. Mm -hmm. You can, uh, and you still want to be efficient. You still want to use those beautiful new toys in the best possible way. Uh, and obviously, we all have just 10 fingers. Uh, and even the younger, super nerdy guys uh, who are now in the rabbit hole and uh, living and briefing command line syntaxes from lighting desks or media servers, they are great, but still, even them, they've got a limitation. So it's important that every, I think it's good that all merges together, that you get control of every element from the same kind of environment or network. Uh, but obviously, at least until the point where everything is perfectly programmed and you just fire it, putting it together, it's always helpful to have people looking after every department, still working on the same show. That's, that's I think, the key. So, like, whatever, if I look, two programmers working for me there, one guy doing all the video, one guy doing the lighting. Even so, out on the road, they split it, like, literally... Uh, I would say 75% of the show is automated. Still, they split it for 25%, which is manual. Uh, so we've got one guy looking after pretty much the whole lighting rig uh, beside of key lights and all kind of the audience stuff that is still all manually by uh, their long-term long lighting director who's been with that band forever. Uh, and it's good to have those two guys there because they can react and uh, they could even though... I would say most of the show could be theoretically run manually if there would be the need to. And uh, I'm still uh, kind of really on fighting for the thing that normally if there's any chance of running, especially concert touring shows, is there any chance to run them live and manual, do it. Timecode mm -hmm. is a great asset without any doubt. Yes. But if you can avoid it, avoid it. It's like music, music is good and grooving because music is manual and it's right off, 
offbeat and off time. That is why bands like ACDC groove, not because they're right perfect on time. The same, the same applies for lighting. Any, any automated lighting is very, it's too perfect. And, and perfection is normally not necessarily the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Not the most beautiful thing in the world, especially not when you want to make something to, to have the people clapping to it and having a good time. Yeah, we agree. I mean, it's like literally there is, for sure there are shows out there and uh, complexities where there's every reason to use automation and, and time code. Like Rammstein, it would, having no dedicated video operator out there who runs the media servers, it would be hard because running all those cues, you could do that manually. And the guy, Mark Brunkert, who programmed it and is out there running the lighting, he's super talented. He could run the lighting easily by himself. But running video and lighting at the same time, which is not necessarily always at the same cue points, it could be difficult. I agree. I feel like we have very similar philosophies in uh, in the industry and at the, at the hmm. console. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making the time, Roland. I really appreciated our time together. I would definitely prefer doing this at a, at a pub in Germany somewhere, yeah. or it would have been nice to do this at Pro Lights and Sound, but, but here we are. In beautiful Zoom land. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate no the time, Roland. Glad talking to you. Good talking to you, my friend. Take care and stay safe and looking forward to talk soon again. Bye.